On February 20, 2009, Dr. Reed Tuxen gave the following lecture as part of the National Academy's African American History Program. The title of the address was 200 Years After Darwin and Lincoln, Freedom, Choice, and Human Survival in the Contemporary American Democratic Society. Dr. Tuxen is the Executive Vice President and Chief of Medical Affairs at United Health Group. Dr. Tuxen has had a long and distinguished career in medicine. He is a former Commissioner of Public Health for Washington, D.C., and has served as Senior Vice President for Professional Standards at the American Medical Association. Dr. Tuxen is a former President of the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles, and he has also served as Senior Vice President for Programs of the March of Dimes Birth Defects Foundation. In 2008, he was named one of the top 25 minority executives by Modern Healthcare Magazine. An Ebony Magazine named him one of the most influential blacks in America. During his lecture, Dr. Tuxen addressed the disparity in African Americans' health status and clinical outcomes, focusing on the intersection between social issues and individual accountability in healthcare. It is a privilege to be with you tonight and to deliver this inaugural address on Black History Month. It's an honor for me to share some thoughts with you from the perspective of, uh, obviously, from an Af the perspective of an African-American man. Uh, I am an African-American man who is extremely proud of his heritage. And I am extremely appreciative of the gifts that my heritage has provided me uh, with. Um, uh, I, uh, uh, it, it has been uh, something that I draw on in a conscious way uh, every day of my life and uh, and I am very sensitive to the reality of being a black man uh, in America. Uh, I am happy to be here because as a physician who is appreciative of his membership in this great academy and as a physician who has focused much of his career fighting on the front lines of health and human survival and advancing the concept of professionalism as it relates to duty, calling, and a commitment to translate knowledge into service to others. And that is a big theme for me tonight. This sense of professionals, this sense of the academy translating its duty and its calling and its expertise into service to others. I want to begin because so much of what I'm going to say has the potential for being enormously controversial and getting me in a lot of trouble, so I'm going to resort to prayer. Uh, this is a non-denominational prayer, so don't get scared. Um, but it's a prayer written by a great friend of mine and a great hero of mine of the Civil Rights Movement named Marion Wright Edelman. Um, she is terrific, and I get to, on occasion, um, have dinner uh, with her uh, in the kitchen. So, you know, she, she'll, I can go backstage and sort of sit with her. She has the following. I'd ask you to open your heart and, and, and your mind. Uh, as she reflects on, O oh God of all children, O oh God of all children, O oh God of the children of Somalia, Soevo, Soweto, South Carolina, and South Africa, of Albania, Alabama, Bosnia, and Boston, of Krakow and Cairo, Chicago and Croatia, help us to love and respect and protect them all. O oh God of black and brown and white and albino children and those all mixed together, of children who are rich and poor, and in between. Oh, children, we can speak English and Russian and Hmong and languages that our ears cannot discern. Help us to love and respect and protect them all. Oh, God of the child prodigy and child prostitute, of the child of rapture and the child of rape, of run or thrown away children who struggle every day without parent or place or friend or future. Help us to love and respect and Protect them all, O oh God of children who can walk and talk and see and hear and jump and sing and dance and play, and of children who wish they could but can't, of children who are loved and unloved, wanted and unwanted. Help us to love and respect and protect them all, O oh God of beggar, beaten, abused, neglected, homeless, aged, drug, and hunger-ravaged children, of children who are emotionally and physically and mentally fragile, of children who rebel and ridicule, who torment and taunt. Help us to love and respect and protect them all, O oh God, of children of destiny and of despair, of war and of peace, of disfigured, diseased, and dying children, of ho children without hope, and of children with hope to spare and to share. Help us to love and respect and protect them all. So this is a sense 
of bringing us together. This topic that I was encouraged to choose is more than a little ambitious and a little more than intimidating. But as I thought about it, it does provide some interesting opportunities for reflection and for conversation. It is interesting that there really is an intersection between Darwin and Lincoln. Not only, of course, that they share the same birthday, born exactly the same day 200 years ago, and that it falls on the month that we celebrate Black History Month. Both Darwin and Lincoln were, of course, unifiers. They were individuals who set in motion extraordinary forces that, while used by many different people with many different agendas and purposes, were remarkable for their effect in shaping the characters and the contours of, mar of, mar of, of, of modern life, of modernity, of shaping our contemporary civilization with its aspirations for democratic ideals. Their work, one operating from the discipline of science, the other one operating from the power of political action, force us to grapple with the essential relationships that we have with each other as individuals and as races within the family of man as well as their work forces us to think about the relationship that we have as humans with our larger biologic and social environment. They put those issues before us. 200 years ago, Darwin arrives for the purpose of providing a unifying foundation that brings together the life sciences, just as uh, the sort of transformative unification of a broader set of sciences that I am arguing for with you tonight. 200 years ago, Lincoln is delivered to us for the purpose of evolving an inclusive and healing vision of the nation, one that serves as a model for our current president. And so it is interesting that 31 days after this inauguration, there is this discussion across the land that maybe we are in a post-racial world now. We have created a black president. Everything must be just fine. Return to your homes, all is well. There ain't no more problems. If you can do this, what, what else is there to worry about? And so there is a robust conversation about the land. And that's one of the things I'm interested in the discussion as you start to think about some of these ideas about whether we in fact are in this post-racial environment. We are here 31 days after President Obama observed the following. He says, for we know that our patchwork heritage is a strength, not a weakness. He says that we are a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus and non-believers. We are shaped by every language and culture drawn from every end of the earth. And because we have tasted the bitter swill of civil war and segregation and emerged from that dark chapter stronger and more united, we can't help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribe shall soon dissolve, that as the world grows smaller, our common humanity will reveal itself. So this is his inaugural statement about this. And it's interesting, the, 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 the sense of temporalness in it, that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribe shall soon resolve. Well, hold that thought in the air and we'll leave it suspended in animation for a minute. And let me introduce you to one more player in the drama, and that's uh, Carter G. Woodson, who is the reason that we, in fact, are here today. He is the person who had the vision in 1927 to invent Black History Month. It was his vision that we needed an effort to popularize the history of black people in America within the context, again, of an inclusionary and interconnected humanity. 
He had a prophetic vision in 1927 that really didn't quite exist. But he says, what we need is not a history of selected races or nations, but the history of the world void of national bias, race, hate, and religious prejudice. That's what we need, he says, in 1927. A prophetic vision of a world that wasn't quite there. So he had to fill a gap. And so he chooses February. Why? Because it's the birthday of the great warrior Frederick Douglass. Because it is the birthday of Lincoln. And he was aware, of course, of the granting of the 15th Amendment um, in February. uh, 139 years ago which allowed folks like me the right to vote. The 15th Amendment, which says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It was a very important therapeutic injection of democratizing molecules. It was a very important therapeutic intervention. However, like most of the clinicians and physicians in the room, you understand, Carolyn, that uh, sometimes the injection needs more than just one dose. And so just the 15th Amendment in and of itself uh, was fairly inadequate. Interesting to me personally, as I observed, that 93 years after that injection of democratizing molecules, my sister-in-law, Vivian Malone, Uh, had to stand on the steps of the schoolhouse at the University of Alabama and confront Governor George Wallace for permission to be able to to attend that school. So we realized that our unifying vision, our democratizing molecules, all require a a lot more effort. Uh, She was able to attend the University of Alabama in 1965 because of the power of government. The power of government that forced that through. And specifically, it was the power of the Justice Department that allowed that to occur. It is fascinating to me that um, uh, as history goes round, that only um, uh, a few days ago, uh, my brother-in-law was sworn in as the first black attorney general of the United States. So it's it's all in the family. And um, that uh, we see this temporalness as we start uh, to realize these visions. But Woodson also understood that the act of publicizing history is an action of transformative significance. That by setting history straight shines light on reality, thereby serving to inspire, but also to stimulate enraged interventionary action. Here's what he said. He said, and I'm melding a couple of thoughts of his all into one, but it has a logic to it. He says that those who have no record of what their forebearers have accomplished lose the inspiration which comes from the teaching of biography and history. If a race has no history, It has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world. It stands in danger of being exterminated, Mr. Darwin. To handicap a student by teaching him that his black face is a curse and that his struggle to change his condition is hopeless is the worst sort of lynching. I am ready to act if I can find brave men to help me. So I was really excited, Harvey, to be able to come, be able to come, Mr. Head of the Engineering of the National Academy of Sciences, Doctor. I was excited to come here to find some brave men and brave women, people who are enlightened, such as you, and who represent the best of our nation and much of the power of our nation. I understand the power of the National Academy of Sciences, Dr. McGinnis. I'm clear that the National Academy of Sciences has an extraordinary opportunity to affect the course of events. In the civil rights movement, there is a tradition called speak truth to power. And so I'm going to continue throughout this to try to speak speak truth to power, but what I really want is the National Academy of Sciences to speak truth to even more power.
And I need you to be deciding today in every way possible to continue to advance key concepts. We have an emergency before us. The election of an African-American male to be president of the United States notwithstanding, we have an emergency before us. And Woodson's point about the need to document the success and shine light on what has occurred as a way of inspiring, we also need to document and shine light on what is not going well as a means to stimulate and motivate action and outrage. We have an emergency and the National Academy of Sciences understands how to respond to emergencies. You are the engineers who make the sirens and the beeps on the machines that say, we got a problem there needs to be an intervention. The physicians of the Academy of Sciences understand how to interpret beeps that are going off, formulate an action plan. What does our data tell us? It tells us that the Darwinian question of survival is still an issue. It is well known that, that white Americans live much longer than black Americans, and this has been going on for a very, very long time. It gets discussed, but it does not get discussed in the context of being a whole at the heart of the American democratic civilization. It gets discussed as an oddity as opposed to a centrality. It is a ghettoized conversation, not a central conversation that deals with the realities of the American democratic experience. Let me tell you a statistic. Mike McGinnis shared this with me, the paper. The gap between the high risk urban black men and Asian women in survival is 21 years. Now, human protoplasm is not that different. It ain't 21 years worth of difference. In this country, there are differences of 21 years of survival between black men and Asian women. Between black men and Asian men, 13 years. The gap between rural black women and Asian women, 13 years. These are extraordinary issues, and they are important, but none of them are as damning as the reality that black babies die twice as often as white babies in this country. And when you put that in context, that says that in our, the, the, the infant mortality rate of America is twice that of Japan, New Zealand, and so forth. The fundamental obligation of a society to organize itself why do we come together in social units? What is the point of it? It has always been to make sure your babies survive the first year of life and grow up to maximize the full extent of their God-given human potential. What else is the point of a society or a civilization? It certainly wasn't to build bridges and it wasn't to paint pictures, important as they are. Did your babies live? What is amazing to me is that it is possible 200 years after Darwin, 200 years after Lincoln, to have a statistic like that not be the central issue on the agenda of the civilization. So when we had the whole health reform discussion, and we talk about it, and I, I, I'm, I'm there, I'm reading it, I'm there. You know, and it, the whole thing is going to be health information technology. I mean, that's really important. And lots of money for that. And it should be, Carolyn, it should be right in your budget. But you, don't, you, you can't open that, that discussion on the stimulus package and say infant mortality, twice as often for black babies not dying. How can you have a democracy if that exists? Worse, how can you have a democracy if it isn't discussed? It's okay. <laughs> we'll write that part off. We don't care about that part. It's not important. You can't have a democracy if that issue is, on, is not attended to, as a first matter of social issue. So we have to deal with that. The question of freedom is important. Today, one out of eight black men in their 20s is in jail or in prison in any given day. If the trends exist another few years that exist now, one-third of black boys born today will spend time in jail during some point of their lifetime. This is America. Now some of y'all, you know, say, wait a minute, that can't be true. It is true. One third. And two thirds of that is not for violent crime. It's nonviolent crime. 
These are the policies that we enact around how we will deal with troubled people. This is not violent crime. The implications of this statistic are extraordinary. And for those of you who are health-concerned people, I think it doesn't take much for you to understand that the, that the consequences of those statistics reverberate well beyond the individuals who are incarcerated. This takes out a whole swath of society that goes with it. The other victims of that are profound. So one of the most sensitive and impactful indicators of freedom and choice and democratization of a population in America is access to public higher education. Very few, it doesn't surprise you, African American, especially males, are in college. 5% of all the students in institutions of higher learning, total, and two-thirds of those do not graduate uh, within six years. So that there, once you even get some in, trying to get us through is very difficult. 10% of the undergraduate population alone are black men. 30% of the Division I foot, uh, athletes are black men. 55% of the football players, 61% of the basketball teams are black men. What's going on here? 7% of medical school graduates are African Americans. A very small number to be added to the only 25,000 black physicians practicing in this country today out of a population of physicians of somewhere between 650 and 700,000. 25,000, that's it. Most of us are on the wall <laughs> in the hallway. The academy, we have to respond. And our responses have to be more aggressive, more muscular. First, response requires to have people alive enough to care. People with the capacity to care and then do more than care, the capacity to act. It requires a transformative unification of the sciences, the biological, the technical, and the others. I have lived for a good period in the life of the academy, and I have lived under the tyranny of the soft sciences. You know, the, we're tough. The docs, the engineers, you know, we are gods. And the rest of those people who do that other stuff, whatever it is, it's soft. That's social stuff. I don't know what else. You know, they're, they're not important because they're not as smart as we are. I urge the academy to begin to do anything in its power to break down those stupid artificial walls because the problems that are confronting our nation and confronting a significant number of them require a transformative unification of sciences in a Darwinian mode evolved now to the modern times which says that we have to find a unifying concept that brings the biological, the technical, and the non-biological and technical soft sciences together in a transformative vision. Uh, we will not be able to have the knowledge base to solve our problems if we cannot do that. As a physician, I have learned to understand that health is the place where all the social forces converge to express themselves with the greatest clarity and the most importance. Let me say it again. Health is the place where all the social forces converge to express themselves with the greatest clarity and the most importance. I was the health commissioner in this town for a number of years. And whenever I would try to go in, and you know, my job was wanted to be the epidemiologist for the city. I kept score, I was a scorekeeper. So many people died of this, so many people died of that, so many cases of this, so many cases of that. When I went back and did as I had been trained at, at Georgetown Medical School, which is to understand the etiology, the causation of disease, you go back and you trace, okay, how did this happen? You find yourself working your way back and all you do is you're standing in the intersection of all the forces of the society. That's what did it. It was all of the other stuff swirling around the person. So all of the wonderful mach machinery and beeps in the night and the technology that I was trained to fall in love with, which is terrific, didn't do doodly squat for how we were going to deal with the real issues, which was standing in the intersection of all those forces in the society. I remember um, worrying about infant mortality and I met a guy who was an, an obstetrician gynecologist, and he said, my job is I catch the baby. That's what I do. I catch the baby. And if the baby's teeny-weeny, little teeny-weeny and small because mama is addicted to nicotine, 
clamping off the uterine vasculature, depriving the baby of oxygen and polluting the system with all kind of junk, and it gets the baby teeny weeny little and small, hey, I ain't into the deba- I catch the baby. And if there is a little teeny weeny little baby, what we do is we got a solution. It's called the neonatal intensive care unit. And we'll just hook them up with every anti-death drug known to man because I just catch the baby. Well, I was at the time the president of Charleston University of Medicine and Science. So I tried to go see if I could find the essay that this guy wrote to go to medical school. And you know what it said. I want to go to medical school and be a doctor to make sure that every baby grows up to maximize the full extent of their God-given human potential and can participate in shaping the American ideal. And it gets down to, I catch the baby. And it's so small. So we need a transformative scientific vision that allows us to put the pieces of the puzzle together that work at every level that required. Number two, response requires understanding that we are all in this together. That somehow, and this is the, 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 the intellectual dichotomy of what I'm asking you to consider tonight, at one level, I'm asking you to think, yes, about these challenges to a specific people. But at the end of the day, we are all in this together. The head of the National Academy of Sciences and, um, and, and Harvey Feinberg at one point authored um, in December of 10th of 2005 a response, a commitment of support from the National Academy of Sciences to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yes, you did. And let me tell you what you did. You committed the Academy to in whole enforcing and upholding the principles and rights of non-discrimination, freedom of movement, and the right to education around the world. And so we are in this together in the United States and around the world. These challenges of education, of incarceration, of freedom, uh, are all issues that we enjoy here, but we enjoy have to worry about those here and around the world. We are in it together whether we like it or not because we're connected by viruses, by airports, by mosquitoes, by violence, by anthrax, by escalating health care costs, uh, by predatory marketing practices of the, of, the, of the death merchants of tobacco. We are all connected by so many forces. When I, um, on my way here, um, I was, um, um, uh, there was somebody coughing on my plane, uh, three rows behind me. And by the time we landed, I had multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis. We are all connected. In California, they just finished doing their budget problem. They had the same budget problem when I was running an academic medical center in L.A. about, uh, I guess, 15 years ago. Their response to the budget problem then was they were going to close the public health clinics. And they actually sent pink slips out to the staff to close them. And the newspaper reporters from the LA Times said to people like me, they interviewed us and said, why should the average Los Angelino care? Why should the normal people care what happens to the poor people? And it was a, it was a very odd question. Well, I thought about it for a minute, and I said, well, you know, thankfully, I've done the definitive scientific study. And it says that when the normal people in Los Angeles retreat to the, their homes behind the gated community, that the tuberculosis bacilli can just about squeeze through those iron bars. And I said, oh. And then I said, who's cleaning your house and taking care of your children? We're all in it together. And so we have to find some way of realizing that, we, that, that this agenda should not be a ghettoized agenda, but it has to be a common agenda. I fear that the things that I'm chatting about will have a hard time in this current economic climate because we are going to retreat to too many other problems. Everybody's suffering. We don't have time for that. Pull yourself up by your bootstrap. It's your fault. Get it together. We don't have, there's nothing else, you know, just, there's nothing for you. We don't have any time for you. What is going to happen for sure is that as we go through these challenges, people will drink more alcohol. They will take more drugs. Men will be more despair. They will hit more wives. There will be more people going to shelters for battered women. This is the reality of what happens when people are scared and when they're under tension. And so the fact that we are all in this together will have some very interesting dynamics. Number three, this issue then of personal decision making. 
This is difficult to talk about because it's heavy loaded with political drama and, and all kind of inference. There is no question that people in my community, that African Americans have got to take more responsibility for their choices and decisions. Some of you may recall that during the campaign, Jesse Jackson got in trouble for making a comment about uh, uh, then-candidate Obama. It was played on every TV maybe 100 million trillion times. The person he said it to was me. And let me tell you what happened. We were in a TV studio, and Fox, and um, they were in New York, and we were in Chicago. And we were there to talk about premature death from cardiovascular disease for poor people and people of color. I'm on a crusade to fight that problem. And I had enlisted Reverend Jackson in that fight and got him engaged and tried to engage the church community and mobilized all of the, church, the black churches to help be a part of a screening activity to try to identify the risk factors early. That's what we went on Fox to talk about. In the middle of it, um, um, recently, right before we went on, Candidate Obama had done his faith-based initiative where he made the comment I just made that, in fact, yes, African-American men have to take more responsibility for their behavior. African-American women have to. African-American children. We do have that accountability and responsibility, and you can't avoid it. They said on our earphone a minute before we were to go on, little IFB, Reverend Jackson, we're going to ask you a question about Obama's faith-based initiative. Are you okay with that? 20 seconds to air, and, and he leaned in and made a comment which he regrets terribly, and I regret terribly because he put me all over the news with him, um, that had something to say. But it was the tension around this issue of his concern, and a lot of people concern, about what does it mean when a person like Obama says personal accountability. And the tension is, A, are you giving credence to the mean-spirited part of the society that says you folk who are not doing well don't deserve the resources of the society because you're bad people. You're not good folk. And you just, therefore, the society's going to turn its back on you because it's your fault and that's it. Are you giving credence to that? Or are you blaming victims for their victimization? So these are very powerful uh, uh, um, thoughts. And it's hard to have the conversation because it becomes a proxy for so many agendas. Common sense is obviously people have to take uh, responsibility for their behavior. The question is how do you create the environment and the conditions that allow people to actually do it? In the concepts of hopelessness, in the absence of the concept of the possibility of a meaningful future, it is very difficult to make that agenda work. Dear young woman, please be sexually responsible. Don't be a baby making babies. Don't be sexually active until you're old enough to make a mature and rational decision. Just say no. Okay, goodbye. There's a great writer named Toni Morrison. And I read her, and I think she's important. And by the way, it's important for all of you to read as many people, it turned that stupid television off, and just read. Read Amy Tan. Read Jimmy Santiago Baca. Read, you know, uh, uh, G Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Read everybody from everywhere so we can get this unifying sense of a common uh, humanity. Toni Morrison's character in one of her books says, she imagined a brightness that could be carried in her arms and distributed if need be into places as dark as the bottom of a well. She imagined a brightness that could be carried in her arms and distributed, if need be, into places as dark as the bottom of a well. Why so dark? She was raped when she was 13, 15, 17. She can't get it out of her head. Don't be sexually active. Da-da-da. Just say no. It doesn't work in that context. Here's our four-color brochure. Dear young African-American man, don't smoke tobacco. We don't want you to get cancer when you're 45, heart disease when you're 50. Just say no. Doc, please. Leading cause of death in my community is homicide. 
I'm not going to live to be past 20. You worry about cancer when I'm 45? Heart disease when I'm 50? Be real. Yeah, but man, don't be sexually active. We don't want you to be baby making baby. We don't want you to get sexually active disease. We don't want you to get age. Just say no. Doc, please. What happens when I walk across the street? Everybody that I know walks to the other side. The women grab their pocketbook and hug them closer to their vest. The only time I've ever seen it on television is with my hands tied behind my back or my blood flowing red down the city's concrete. I am never, ever, ever recognized for being wonderful and terrific. The only person that ever says they love me, that I'm wonderful and fantastic, is the woman I make love to. Oh, Johnny, you are wonderful. You are powerful. You are terrific. When are you coming back? Doc, come on. What are you going to give me in trade? I have very little patience with silly agendas. And I have very little patience with ideals that don't translate into saving death. Ideal in death. I deal with it all the time. It's around me all the time. So ideals that don't translate into the sense for reality are, to me, silly. Having said that, we have to find a way to get past this idea of blame and finger pointing. In this town, I used to try to talk about HIV disease. And I would go on radio shows all the time. And I would say to people, wear a condom, blah, 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 blah. Inevitably, the first question when they open up the phone lines would be from, from an African-American man somewhere who would say, Tuskegee, always Tuskegee, brought back on me. And Tuskegee is where, you know, and there's experimentation and all the bad things that happen, and AIDS is a plot from the CIA and Langley and blah, 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 blah. And I, and, and I would always, what, what has that got to do with you wearing a condom tonight? I mean, what are you talking about? But that sense of distrust and so forth is so real. And so many people have a hard time getting past it. And I was having a hard time getting past it until I got invited to give the second commemorative lecture at the creation of the Tuskegee Memorial Institute for Ethics down south. And about before I came on, they brought in the last living people from Tuskegee. And these men, who were unlettered, poor, broken, physically, people, suffering from the ravages of this horrendous thing, walked or hobbled in with an aura of dignity that was so profound that there was no speech to give, other than my simply saying, ladies and gentlemen, behold, <laughs> these people. They just were so dignified. And when they were asked by, to speak, what the only thing they said was one phrase. We forgive. Whoa. What? We forgive. So I do know in my heart it is possible to get to a different place. Lincoln in his inaugural address for his second inauguration, gave his speech, and he was, I mean, deep into the war. And his speech, if you go back and read, I mean, he is like whipped death, people dying, blood, hard, and if it takes us, we, we will, pres I mean, I ain't backing off, I know how many people done got wiped out, I, but you know, it, whatever it takes, we are going to drive, he was hardcore. And then all of a sudden, as he was like running his thing, he flipped a switch in the, right in the middle of it. And all of a sudden he says, but with malice toward none and with charity for all. That great line. He went from, <laughs> to he just worked it out. Now a lot of people, by the way, if you start talking about Lincoln, people will tell you that Lincoln used to use the N-word. And Lincoln was, did, and you can get into a whole lot of complicated stuff about Lincoln who did not go into all this with the, you know, the simple great purity. But people like W.D. Boyce thought a lot about Lincoln and, and, and finally said, you know what? What I appreciate about what he did was he got from one place to another. He evolved. Du Bois talked about that I care more for the toe of Lincoln than for the whole body 
of George Washington with all of his perfection and cherry trees, who was uninteresting as hell, Lincoln, who absolutely captures the imagination. Those of you that love Washington, don't get mad at me. So, personal responsibility. Our children have got to come to believe that they are special. That there are people who care about them and who believe in their possibilities. That there are people willing to bet on them. That we see them. That we see something in them. A glimmer of possibilities that they don't even see. We have to find a way, all of us, to see these kids and say, I see you. It is possible. I believe in you. And I'm willing to bet on you that their communities need them, that their nation needs them. They have no idea that the community needs them, that their nation, and that it is possible to succeed if they change things. These kids need spare time, time to think and to imagine. I tried to think in my own mind how much of my life as a child, because of this person here, I was allowed to, my mother, for those who don't know her, I was allowed a lot of time to lay on my back in fields and look at clouds, wander around. Y'all do that? Of course you did. You spent a lot of time just idly wandering around. How many of the children in inner city America wander around? First of all, they unfortunately got that damn boom, diddy boom, diddy boom, diddy boom all day long in their head. There's no space for a thought. There's no room. You can't get it. But the, the din of life, you know, yes, I believe in personal responsibility, but we got to clear out a little space. Let these children have their childhoods back. They don't have that. So we need to find a way to give them a chance to be curious. The need and courage to explore complex ideas and grapple with those ideas and make them their own. Our children need to have some chance to understand the discipline of solitary study. They need to seek out mentors and mentors need to be there for them. So these kids aren't afraid of successful people. Let me tell you why I am so pissed off. Last year, I went to a career weekend retreat, busted, flew in a thousand black, brown, and Asian poor children who profess an interest in science. It's done by the Association of Minority Health Profession Schools, the black medical schools, and, uh, and veterinary school at Tuskegee and, and Xavier Pharmacy. And we bust these, they brought these kids in. And you should see, the first time these children have ever been away from home, first time they had to sit in a restaurant and they had to figure out how to use the, the little fork versus the big, I mean, all of it was new. And they had to be in this space, this hotel space, and they had to negotiate all of that. And they had people talking to them. And we had people present to them. And then we listened to the children. And there's a child who, who, who lives in a car. He lives in a car. And he's doing good science. And he stands up and he presents his poster on the science he's doing. He lives in a car and he's doing good science. This year, they don't have any money to do this program. There ain't no money to do the program. So only a few kids will go this year. Only a very few. My wife and I wrote our check. Lord knows. And I wrote a check to every business that I know of and begged people for money. How can it be in America with all this statistics I'm talking about, Harvey, and we can't even send, I mean, these are the kids who want to do. Yes, personal responsibility, but we as a society can't even get these kids who want to be successful to get them to a place so they have a chance to be inspired, to be around, to have the space to think and so forth and so on. So I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, Harvey, NAS has got to write a letter to somebody somewhere. The Saturday Science Academies. When I was at Charles Drew in the middle of Watts, LA, we had what we call the Saturday Science Academy. Kids who every Saturday came to the school, 7 to 14, they all wore white coats and they were all called doctor. You put a white coat on, an, on a kid from Watts, I guarantee you, not one of them will hit another kid upside the head. 
Not one of them will cuss, and they sit in the chair with a remarkable posture. We filled every chair in the school and taught them how to launch rockets, sir, on the lawn of the school and calculate the trajectory of the rockets based on the, the effect of the wind. We dissected dogfish sharks. We took snakes and let them play with snakes and roaches and roaches. And then that was during the time when Hillary Clinton was the first lady, and we brought Hillary out there to spend time with the children. And with a hundred million cameras, those kids taught her how to use the otoscope and the ophthalmoscope. No, no, Miss Clinton, you do it like this. <laughs> Programs out of business, no money. The Mark and MBRS program at NIH. These are the programs that train young minority scientists. Psst. Wiped out. How can you have a democratic civilization and these sort of things occur and that they occur unnoticed and unprotested? We need you. We have to reach out and deal with these issues with substance abuse and the criminal justice system. That's why all those kids are in jail, through stupid, dumb policies. We don't treat kids when they have a substance abuse problem and these interdiction and incarceration programs wipe out all these futures. And it's just stupid and it's dumb and it doesn't make sense and above all, it don't work. And lastly, as interventions, we'll need to deal with better medicine and better medical care and more specific care. And Carolyn, who runs the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, is my shero in so much of, of this work. She is the one who is, is responsible for uh, developing the the guidance for better care to deal with these disparities. And she's made disparities a key issue on her agenda. The genetics is going to be important. I just finished six years of service on the Secretary of Health Advisory Committee on Genetics, most of it as chairperson. And I will tell you that I am very interested in what this is going to mean to the society as we begin to deconstruct the individual far irrelevant to what we classify people as, well, this is a black person or a brown, it's, it's, it's meaningless when it comes to the genetic issues that will define our therapeutics intervention, that will define our probability of disease, that will define our interventions. It's irrelevant. So now we're going to wind up having to marry a, you know, it was, it was one of the great African-American thinkers um, um, our brother from Harvard, um, Skip, Skip Gates, who did the um, uh, did a whole thing on PBS with uh, having his DNA done. He went and did DNA on every, all these famous people. Skip was really pissed because it's like, wait a minute, where, where's the African part? Skip was like Northern European, you know, all over the place. He's like, I can't believe it. He was very distraught, especially because. Uh, this, this uh, uh, Tucker, Chris Tucker, the uh, great comedian, was like 100% like, here's the village that you're from. <laughs> Chris, I mean, so Chris is like going home, you know, having a party, and, and Skip is wandering around going, who am I? You know, it was really a mess. But it scared me so bad, I didn't do it. Because I didn't want to know. I, I, can't, I couldn't handle it. So this idea, though, of the genetics as it relates to intervention versus the population social dynamic, which are equally powerful determinants of disease and expression of the natural history of disease once present, is going to be powerful. So how do we unify and put those together? Well, I've got to close out. So let me just say that as I bring these to closure, I wonder where we will be in 200 years. You know, where will we be in 200 years when they give this talk? Will there even be a need to have a Black History Month? Will we, as President Obama suggests, uh, that the lines of tribe will have dissolved by, by then? Uh, will our science and our politics have unified our conceptualization of problems uh, and our response to them in a whole new dynamic? Well. Theoretical concerns about the far distant future aside, I'm worried about today and tomorrow. I want to embrace a singular national vision of a great democratic civilization. 
one that is fully evolved to represent the best of what our species, Mr. Darwin, Darwin, can become. I know that we are not there yet and cannot be there as long as we are willing to tolerate our babies dying in the first year of life as often as they are. For me, it is not theoretical, it is deeply personal. I have seen too many premature autopsies. I have recorded too many preventable deaths. I have even buried a son, a victim to the rising tide of confusion, chaos, despair, and hopelessness that accompanies so many of the policies and realities of our society. I don't know about 200 years from now, but I do know about today and tonight and tomorrow. I am not ashamed to make my appeals to you, National Academy of Sciences. I got grandkids to raise. We need you. I'll leave you with the words of James Baldwin, great, great African-American writer. He says, we must learn to deal with despair and dishonesty, the things that keep people from knowing each other. We must say yes to life and embrace it wherever it is found, and it is often found in terrible places. For nothing is fixed forever and forever. Life is not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to grind down the rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses that they have. The sea rises. The light fails. Lovers cling to each other and children cling to us. The moment we cease to hold each other, the moment we break faith with one another, the sea engulfs us and the light goes out. Good night, Kobe. Happy birthday, Mr. Lincoln. Happy birthday, Mr. Darwin. <laughs>